From the heart of Vermont, this podcast is brought to you by Capital City Concerts, a concert series which assembles exceptional musicians from across the globe in remarkable live performances in an intimate venue. Learn more at capitalcityconcerts.org. The art and the music and the ministry all overlap. And in some way, I do feel like a theologian in disguise (laughs) as an artist and a musician, because that's so much of what's kind of going on in my internal landscape, painting or playing or whatever. They're all coming from the depths and they're all responding, in a sense, to the depths. My name is Karen Kevra, and you're listening to Muse Mentors, a podcast about artists and their mentors. Some people say it's not what you know, but who you know. I say it's how you know them. There's a challenge about talking about visual art in a podcast. Words fall short. Katie Rundy's artwork is varied and incredible. So I'd like you to take a little bit of time and go to her website or her Instagram page or even the Muse Mentors website to check out some of the images. I promise you, you will be blown away. She's a millennial Renaissance woman, and the list of the things that she can do is extraordinary. She's a talented realist oil painter, a chalk artist, a snow sculptor, and yet she is under the radar. Someone give this woman a MacArthur Genius Grant. One of my very first memories of Katie Rundy was from a few years ago when I went to Woodstock, Vermont, to the Town Hall Theater to see a production of Cabaret. She was the saxophonist, a member of the Kit Kat Cabaret pit band, and boy, did she stand out. Katie has movie star good looks. She looks like a young Uma Thurmond, and wow, can she play the saxophone style and soul. What I didn't realize when I went to the theater that night is that I had actually met her about an hour before the show even started. The Woodstock Snow Sculpture Festival was taking place that day on the Village Green, and so I checked out that exhibit before heading across the street to the show. There were maybe a dozen or so enormous snow sculptures, but one of them really stood out, a giant octopus the size of a small school bus, complete with its eight swirling arms and those countless octopusy suction cups. Such incredible detail and movement created out of a huge lump of snow. Turns out that it was sculpted by a team that included Katie Rundy. And it turns out that that octopus sculpture took first prize in that show. Katie Rundy, welcome to Muse Mentors. 
Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start at the beginning. Well, I was born in in Danbury, Connecticut. have zero memory of that because I grew up in Rochester, New York, in a lovely suburb called Pittsford. Could you say Rochester again? (laughs) Well, it should be Rochester, but to the locals, it's more like Rochester. The best part of the Rochester accent is the ah, like you put apples in a bag. And my dad worked at Kodak, like everyone else's dad. Wow. So that's like a combination of, I hear kind of Chicago mixed together with Boston. I think it's called the Northern Vowel Shift. It's got something in common with, yeah, I think like Minnesota-ish, just some North, yeah. something going on there. So I grew up in Ranchester and I was lucky enough to have two, I thought at the time, very weird parents. Like our whole family was just weird and I never really got it until now in adulthood. I'm like, wow, I was really lucky to have a cool family. My parents were medievalists. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She had all but gotten her dissertation in medieval English literature, just thought the better of it and kind of went off into freelancing in the arts and being an awesome mom. My very first memory of her was uh, working in the attic of our house. It, It was one of those super cozy attics with a sloped ceiling. At one point, it recessed into this little nook where there was a window, and that's where she put her drawing table. And I remember her painting these scenes for a calendar, so they were seasonal pictures. She was painting with gouache, which is an opaque watercolor, and it has a very distinctive kind of cozy smell to it. It's probably cozy because I associate it with her. Um, but she was painting these scenes, and there, you know, there were children in them, and there were these landscapes, and. There was something so magical about this whole world just being created in front of me. Were you very young? I think I was probably three or four. She would give us these worksheets she made where she would draw all these different shapes and have a line in front of each shape so we could draw the shape too. And they'd be like spirals. They'd be difficult shapes. There would definitely be struggle involved. So you you must have picked up the paintbrush soon after you had this early childhood memory of her painting. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think I mainly was a marker and pencil and pen kind of kid, but I was always drawing something. Um, Did you do coloring books? I loved coloring books and I love coloring books. (laughs) I did color it within the lines. You know, the stereotype of the artist is, is that you're like free thinking outside the lines, but I would know I was struggling to get as in those lines as I could. And it was frustrating when I, when I got out of the lines. I mean, later on, I would start shading in (laughs) the pictures in the coloring book. I never got to that point. (laughs) What would you say you loved most about art as a kid there was there was the power to take me elsewhere like I would I would make maps and stories and stuff my sister we would draw together Um, but also I I loved copying pictures of animals I would get these animal books out of the library and try to draw some of my favorite animals there was definitely some early ego involved in it I mean early on I showed aptitude and so I used the heck out of that 
Ah, little sibling rivalry. Little sibling rivalry. You mentioned your family being weird. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about your family. Tell us about your family (laughs) life. Tell us a weird story. Well, my dad, for some reason, remembers clearly every poem he had to memorize for his master's exams. And he'll just bust them out at random times. It's been really sweet sometimes. You know, I'd call home being like, oh, Papa, so-and-so broke up with me. Like, blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, oh, and just bust out with a sonnet, which is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember this one time, I think I was about 11. So I was already becoming aware that not only I, but my parents were also radically uncool. And we were at church. Um, I grew up Catholic. We were at church. And um, there were kids I knew there. And they started playing Ode to Joy at some point in the mass. And my dad decided that he'd had enough with their funereal tempo and decided to sing it at the tempo he wanted in German. (laughs) In public, I was mortified. I get the sense that your mom was really probably your first mentor. And I know that you have a connection to her through religion and and prayers that you used to share. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. I have to backtrack it a little bit, I think, to when I became <laughs> I became an agnostic overnight at age eleven. I remember standing exactly where I was standing in church and how the light was from the stained glass windows. And like, let's be real. I was a child and I did not like church because it was boring, but I was still, you know, paying attention. And I remember I had this moment where I'm like, none of this stuff actually makes any sense at all. And there was this moment of like existential dread. And then I'm like, well, yeah, but mama is down with this and she knows what's up. So maybe there's something here I don't see. I guess I'll just stick with it. And and you did? I did. <laughs> and I, I don't know at this point where I'd be without it. I remained a pretty angsty agnostic most of the way through my 20s. But in the meantime, I think starting around maybe like my preteen years, my mom would take me to this Benedictine monastery in Elmira, New York, called Mount Savior. And they take care of sheep there and chant hours there at the most beautiful stone chapel. And agnostic though I was, I still would ask that she take me there. There was a palpable peace there. There was something very just impossible to describe, but I wanted it. And for those who don't know what chant the hours means, (laughs) it's a very intriguing phrase. Okay. Well, my favorite was Compline, which is the night prayer. Um, Why was it your favorite? I think because I, I was a pretty happy kid, but I still... I had a sense of, of dark, you know, there was the 
I definitely had plenty of anxiety and fears about this or that. And there's something so deeply calming about a service, to, like a brief service to both acknowledge the darkness and usher in the night and pray for protection in the night. And later on, when I was about 15 and started having anxiety attacks, I found all the more comfort in that night prayer because it was situated right there in the darkness. When I was having a bad episode, sometimes my mom would sit with me and we'd say that Compline prayer from the monastery together. And that would really help kind of bring me back. Well, I could see how that could make for some really deep and enduring bonding with your mom. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. She was not afraid of those dark places and um, was an incredible guide through them. When I started having anxiety and panic attacks, uh, my mom, and actually... I think I did too. We both recognized that they were coming from the same place my creativity came from. Mm. And just being in the room with her, since she recognized what it was, um, would be really, really helpful to me. You know, at what point did you realize you could call upon those dark moments or maybe your own dark side and have that? be integrated into your art. Um, I did notice that I started to be able to work with my own dis-ease, my own feelings of fear or dark um, by playing music, especially working on my jazz chops, improvising. There was room in the music to handle all of those unspeakable feelings. Ah, and so this brings us probably to your next mentor, <laughs> your first music mentor. Yeah, so I had a lot of great music teachers through the years, um, but I would not have seen a true musician in myself or even thought about going into music if it weren't for Lou Soloff. He was one of the original members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, great jazz trumpet player, East Mid alum. I met Lou my junior year of high school when um, our jazz band was one of many around the area to do this a workshop with Lou. And so all the jazz bands from all these different schools parade out and we all play our stuff. And I was very bitter that year to not be first chair yet. But I still had a solo in one of our songs. It was a free jazz solo that made me terribly uncomfortable. But I, you know, stand up and play this solo. And Lou pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, one of the most, you know, one of the most important things in music is, is rhythm. But second to that is soul. Soul cannot be taught. You either have it or you don't. And you have it. You have something special and you should... You should really follow that. And it just blew my mind. I had no idea. Whenever I was in New York or he was in Rochester, we'd get together and hang out. I remember when I lived in Ireland, I went over on his birthday once to London because he was playing at Ronnie Scott's. And so I got to go to his gig and hung out afterwards. 
And he was just always such a huge-hearted, magnanimous guy. And one of the most amazing things that I learned through my time with him was that I was not the only one he was helping through like this. In a completely unsketchy, just raw generosity kind of way, he's just one of those people who just pick people up and guide them along. Like, amazing person. take a short break and I'll be back with my guest Katie Rundy in just a moment. So off you went to Eastman. So <laughs> off I went to Eastman. I had been warned that one should not go to conservatory unless music is all you want to do. And obviously that was not me, but I'm like, oh, it'll be different. Mm. <laughs> and it was not different. I got to Eastman and had to scramble to keep up. I went in as a classical major, hoping desperately to transfer into the jazz department. Ah, but that didn't happen because? Well, I got there and I just froze up around jazz. Part of it was that I, you know, I didn't have an amazing jazz ear. So I would listen to the guys in the studio playing their cutting contests. So they're just trying to out improvise the other one. And they sounded exactly the same. I'm like, well, what's the point? The jazz I loved was much more melodic. Um, I loved earlier jazz. I didn't like anything after bebop. I was like, oh, blah. So you left there. Yeah, I had major tension injuries at that point. I had terrible tendonitis. I had overuse in both elbows. Like my body was trying to tell me something. <laughs> but what really got me was when the cafeteria waffle irons were replaced with waffle irons with treble clefs in them. And I was like, I can't even have a waffle without music. I think one of the pitfalls of, of a conservatory education is that it in most cases, does require you to put blinders on. I, I think you are seeing more and more of these double degree programs where students are working at their craft, you know, a, a conservatory is a kind of trade school. And yet supplementing that with studying other subjects where we use our minds in different ways, studying math or medieval English or or what have you. I, I think that's so important. Uh, and I think that some students, one of the reasons why they they never make it through conservatory is because they aren't able to let in more light. Yeah. Well, there, what I noticed is <laughs> I was shocked at the low writing standard. <laughs> People would send me their papers to proofread because that was a skill I had. <laughs> and I'd be like, dear goodness, like, don't you people care about Beowulf? So you left Eastman. And then what did you do? Oh, boy. So my mom had gone to school for a couple of years at University College Cork in, in the south of Ireland. And that's where I wound up going for, for a semester just to find my legs again. Huh. Ireland. Did you fall in love? Um, yes, I think I did. Um, but part of the important thing that happened there was I realized that I loved to study. And while I was in Ireland, I was studying folklore and ethnography, and it was just captivating. It was incredible. And I would go, <laughs> I would go to the library and 
I, I went about it with my Eastman work ethic that was like, you know, if you're not practicing, you're going to sink. So I was working really hard. I think a professor came up to me one point. He's like, you know, you can relax. Like, I don't want to relax. This is amazing. And <laughs> my grades reflected it. A year ago, I would not have dreamed I'd be a podcaster right now. Here's how it happened. I am the artistic director of a great little concert series in Montpelier, Vermont called Capital City Concerts. And when the pandemic hit in our 20th season, we had to cancel our concerts. But we really wanted to stay in touch with our wonderful audience and provide joy and inspiration, a feel-good podcast at a time when people really needed a respite from the news. And so here we are with the Muse Mentors podcast. It takes about 120 hours to produce each episode, way more than I would have ever dreamed. So we're looking for support. If you're able, we'd invite you to go to musementors.com or our Patreon page and support us at whatever level is possible for you, a dollar a month, $5 a month or more. We'd be so grateful for your support. Thanks. Okay, we're back with Katie Rundy. I went to the Lyme Academy College of Fine Art, which was a very classically rooted art school. I've always been a bit of a realist, like, you know, even as a kid, I would go to an art museum and look at the folk art and be like, why can't these people draw? You know, <laughs> like modern art was totally just not my thing. So it was important to me to find an art school that was based around realist art, capturing, capturing what's really there. I became very much aware that I still did not, I was still completely burned out. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I still learned a lot of great drawing skills while I was there. And I actually was in the same class of, as the son of my future art mentor. Ah. Yeah. So huh. that's, how, that's how I would have ever known Evan Wilson is that his son, Jeremy, who's now an incredible illustrator because Jeremy was in my class. Interesting aside, Evan Wilson is the brother of one of my childhood heroes, the flutist Ransom Wilson. So there's that. Uh, what are the chances? Uh, I know these these amazing families. Here we have it again. But all of this also brings up the question of school versus work when you have a trade, whether it's creating artwork or making music. You don't have to go to music school or art school to be either a musician or an artist. Cloistering yourself away uh, can certainly help. Putting the blinders on can certainly help. But at some point, you got to start living life. Mm -hmm. Apprenticeship is a great way to learn. But to that point, I would also like to add that while I learned so much about music at Eastman, I was so scared. I was a sensitive enough kid to be so mortified by it that I was ready to quit music altogether. But I took a saxophone to Ireland and really got my sea legs there playing music all the time and really learned so much just being out on stage every weekend.
let's go back to Evan Wilson. Yeah. You described how you first learned of him, but how did you finally meet him and begin to work with him? Back when I knew Jeremy, I don't think I realized his father was an artist. So fast forward, maybe nine years down the road, we're Facebook friends. And I see him posting these amazing paintings. And it turns out they were his father's paintings. I had no idea. Also, I was like, you know, if I could paint like anybody, I'd want to paint like him. He really just paints with this grace that is just glorious. And he's just got such an um, amazing touch when it comes to capturing light. Um, so fast forward a couple more years, and I'm realizing that, you know, just doing a couple workshops and oil painting was not quite enough to make me a proficient painter. I remember Jeremy's dad. So I looked him up online and it turned out he lived two hours away in Hoosick Falls, New York. So I emailed him out of nowhere and I'm like, hey, do you give lessons? And he didn't really give lessons, but he's like, you know, come down, bring some paintings and we'll talk. Nice. That was a terrifying drive. (laughs) (laughs) I've been looking uh, at some of, of his work online and I very much see his influence in in your painting. Oh, good. Very much. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, clearly this is someone who, who paints what he sees. And I find the same thing when I look at your artwork, there are times when I'm looking through images and I think, oh, what's that photograph doing in there? (laughs) And then I zoom in and I realize it's not a photograph. It's that real the light is so convincing and there's so much texture. So is that something you learned from him? I had some of it already. Um, I'd done a workshop at the Florence Academy in Florence, which is the place to go if you want to be a realist painter. And also the Academy of Realist Art in Toronto. And I learned a lot there, but Evan really helped me get around paint. All these, just all these little tricks, and also he helped, he helped inspire me, keep me moving, he helped push me, because that, you know, once again, he was just like, if you want to do this, that this has to be your only thing, in a way, like conservatory. If you want to do anything else, this is not for you. So for a while, I, you know, was working seven days a week. Um, I would drive to his studio every week, be there all day. And then I do a life drawing class there. And I, you know, it'd be a 17 hour day by the time I got home. Mm-hmm. So I was really trying to live it, live it and breathe it for a while. And he helped me access that, that place in myself. I would guess that realist painting has to be technically more difficult than abstract painting. This is based on nothing but my own gut feeling. What do you have to say about that? Personally, I feel like it's the classical music of painting. You know, it's much, much maligned (laughs) by all the new cool painting that's like, oh, you have cameras for that. It's like, oh, oh, come on. We know better than that. You know, if you've heard Beethoven's Ninth, you know what transcendence sounds like. Realist painting is a similar attunement to what is, you know, kind of like the monks doing the hours. It can take you right back into the presence it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of craft. It takes a lot of hours. Kind of like now the music I play, I default to funk music. Like after all that 
classical jazz binary. I, I turned into a rocker. And um, it's it's almost like in my musical life, I'm doing the more abstract thing that, that's that's easier and faster, and you know, in some ways, can make more money and broader brushstrokes, I suppose. Much broader brushstrokes. I was really struck by your frog prints painting. <laughs> I was wondering if you could describe it and tell us the story behind it. It's a copy of Rubens' Honeysuckle Bower that he painted in 1609. And it was originally like a self-portrait of himself and his first wife. And he's all blinged out in his orange leggings and they've got their amazing lace <laughs> going on. Like it's a look how much in love and how wealthy we are kind of portrait uh, kind of a status statement yes and my ex-fiance decided this would make a great wedding invitation if i put our faces in it but you'll notice that now there is not a, a guy there there is a bullfrog with his lace collar and fancy dutch hat uh, because the engagement did not hold and I didn't know what to do with the painting. it had taken a gazillion hours now there's me and my incredible lace ruff and there's this bullfrog. While we're talking about paintings, I would love for you to describe your still life with my feelings painting. <laughs> so after two years of studying with Evan Wilson, I was starting to burn out a little because six to eight hours a day, six to seven days a week is not, <laughs> is not what, where my psyche is happy. Let's put it that way. In retrospect, this is almost like my senior thesis in a way. It was like my my last painting with Evan. He suggested that since I loved painting desserts, um, I should do a very serious Dutch style still life with desserts. Now, I very much owe my now love of painting silver to Evan, who got me into painting silver. It has the funnest reflections. And so this still life was his idea. It's got some of the basic marks of um, a real, you know, an old school realist painting. I've got the damask tablecloth and the mahogany still life table and a silver pitcher, a silver bowl and like a funky silver plate up front. And it's got natural light. Evan's very much about working from life, north light is diffuse and stays the same all day. So you just work for hours and the light just stays the same. Um, so it's got this soft, understated northern light, but it's a little more lively color-wise than a Dutch still life. It's got extremely <laughs> lively color-wise. <laughs> I've got a big jar full of peanut M&Ms because they're the biggest ones. And I've got Hanukkah coins and Lake Champlain Valentine's Day chocolate hearts and I started this, I think, around Easter time, so I've got a bunch of Easter eggs and another jar full of hearts and chocolate. And are there any peeps in there? No peeps. Uh. Peeps are too formless. <laughs> I learned the hard way. Painting donuts was too formless, too. I'm like, oh, but they're so tasty. There is a big old lemon cake with coconut around the edges from Lou's Bakery in Hanover, New Hampshire. And two cupcakes and um, what's called a Torino, which is kind of like a, a relative of the opera cake with gold leaf on top up front because it's got a gazillion layers. 
One quick story about that lemon cake. I could smell the lemon from this cake all day, and it was driving me nuts. And so I finally went around with a fork to the back of the cake and started eating it from the back where you can't see it. (laughs) Oh, that's a problem with delicious still lifes, I suppose. It is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Evan did tell me to not put my reflection in the silver, but I loved how it was both right side up and upside down. And I was like, well, really, I could do what I want ultimately. So my reflection is in the silver. Oh, and I love the the way in which that is more your signature on that <laughs> painting than any signature could ever be. So. <laughs> um, also, the very last day, it just the painting was looking kind of dead. And I was like, you know, months of work, and it's looking kind of dead, like, come on. And then I realized that I loved the crinkled wrappers of the chocolate eggs that I'd already eaten. I just painted at the last minute a crinkled wrapper into the front. And then I realized what it was about. It was about my comfort eating. So the title of it became Still Life with My Feelings, and it just took on the character it needed. Mentors are really important to us, but at some point, it's also important that they push us out of the nest. (laughs) And that we finally take wing. Speaking of wings, I wonder if you could talk about your recent project, your wing project. This was definitely a um, AE after Evan project. Um, Evan was very rightly um, concerned about my how it was spread around my focus was. To him, it was bad enough that the... <laughs> The music was getting in the way, but, you know, I also did chalk art, I did snow sculpture, and these things clearly separated my energy from painting. And so I think he was a little dubious when I started messaging him about my latest project. This is a couple years ago. Uh, I wanted to create a giant pair of wings. And my excuse was that I would be able to then finally paint this painting of Icarus reconsidering his flight to the sun that I'd wanted to do for years. So if I made the wings, then I could paint them, right? I wanted to make them proportional to an adult. So they had to be absolutely huge and have a strong frame. And and the wingspan is what? 16 feet. What does it weigh? It weighs about 50 pounds. You have to oh. really belt it around your midriff. It works better for ladies because we got the hips to handle it. <laughs> so what kinds of feathers did you use? And where did you get them? Well, um, most importantly, I had to um, look around online. There's a great cosplay artist um, who goes under the name Crooked Feather, and she is the wing master. She came up with her own design and also a way of making um, huge feathers. So, you know, I can't find a vulture with feathers seven feet long. So, well, I think the longest one's more like five feet long. Um, So you have to make them. And the style I learned from her was taking um, nine or 12 gauge steel wire, straightening it out, and then gluing broadcloth to either side. These are wings of Game of Thrones proportions. (laughs) They're giant. (laughs) They're pretty empowering to wear. So what have you done with them? You know, as I was finishing them, I'm like, I want I want people to be able to wear these and feel their potential. The theme is ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, ascent. So um, I scheduled a soft opening and I had the wings on a mannequin and I had 
50 pages of quotes about ascent. And a year later, I finally um, photographed them on a actor friend who is my model for Icarus. So I get the realist oil painting and I, I get the wings. Those are tangible works of art that will stick around for a while. But you also do chalk art <laughs> and you do snow sculpting. And this is what I would think of as ephemeral art. Chalk art, I think it kind of pressed some of the same buttons as music in that it's performative. Usually art is alone in the studio. And this was like you against the clock or you against the elements. And it's very, in some sense, athletic as well. You're up and down. You know, after a 10-hour chalk commission, I can't walk for a couple days. Well, and I, th I think about when you're doing chalk art, your canvas has to be really variable. You you must have grainy surfaces, certainly filthy, probably Ugh, yeah. surfaces, cracks, maybe even depressions, places where maybe a puddle might form. How do you work with that? It's fantastically improvisatory. And the good news is that most of those deviations in the surface um, disappear because the image is usually big enough. And I usually do 3D work. So you you stand back and your eye just kind of covers up all of the irregularities. And by um, 3D, it really looks like it's lifting off of the ground. I, my first memory of chalk drawings was from the original Mary Poppins movie where, where Bert, the chimney sweep, played by Dick Van Dyke, is creating sidewalk art. And I had to go back and, and look at that again. It's pretty terrible <laughs> they're also they're, they're very small. What's a typical span of of your chalk art? The largest I did was fifty six by twenty eight feet. Does it not break your heart when it rains? Only if I'm in the middle of a piece. If I'm in the middle and I haven't finished it, that's pretty upsetting. But if I finished, I'm ready to get out of there and say goodbye. Usually there was, I think there was one piece I did uh, at the Sarasota Chalk Festival. The theme that year was extinct and endangered species. And I did this swirl of I think 72 different extinct and endangered birds. And I just fell in love with them while I was working on them. And that one was hard to say goodbye to. And it did rain the next day. <laughs> well, that makes me think too about the work that you're doing, ice sculpting and chalk art, is hardly a painter sitting beside a field of sunflowers in the south <laughs> of France on a perfect day in June. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about real adversity, cold elements. That's part of the fun. It, it's also, I mean, a big part of both chalk and um, snow sculpture are the communities around them. It's such a social environment. So, you know, if you're at an international chalk festival, you're meeting people, other artists from all around the world. You're building relationships with them. You see them festival after festival, and it's just so much fun. 
And in Snow Sculpture, once again, you meet these people from different states, you build relationships with them, and you're so happy to see them year after year. And it makes the minus one degree wind chill off the lake all night a lot easier. The other thing is that we're talking about a three-dimensional art form. Had you done sculpting before this? Not much. The last nationals we were at, we were sculpting a cow. She had all four legs. And at one point, her legs and her tail had all come off and had to be glued back on. And like we, because it was getting too warm too fast. So she was doing great until like the last minute. And we were scrambling to like the tools down bell to the very last second to get one of her legs back on. Do you have the option of reinforcing things with rebar or wire or anything like that? Nope. It's just snow. Every now and then I'm like, what the heck am I doing? Why am I doing this? But then... Or even like, you know, one nationals were like, oh, this is it. We're done. And then on the even before we get back to Vermont, we're like, what are we doing next year? We'll be back with my guest, the multifaceted artist Katie Rundy, in a moment. So if being a musician and being an artist in several mediums isn't enough, You also have an interest in theology, and I understand a master's degree in religious studies from the University of Chicago Divinity School. Sometimes I find when I'm teaching a drawing class that something I say sounds like something out of a sermon. (laughs) Sounds so theological. You're talking talking about dark and light all the time. You're talking about depth. You're talking about, you know, having to stand back from something to see it properly trying to get through the noise, get through the clamor of society and your ego to find what's really there. And what's really there suddenly is just all light. You are training for the ministry right now. Is that right? Well, I'm kind of on the edge of being a candidate for ministry in the Episcopal Church. I felt the call towards ministry as a teenager, and there was nothing I could do about it being a Catholic. I was just stuck being a female Catholic. And yet the call was there. And in a way now, you know, I look back at my mother and my maternal grandmother, and I see women who would have made spectacular ministers, but, but couldn't. It feels almost like a family inheritance in a way. And I'm like the first generation that can bust out and answer the call. I think it's one thing to have an interest and a real curiosity for religion. But it's something else to stand up on the pulpit. (laughs) It makes me wonder if the performer part of you and the religious part of you have met and found a way to manifest. I like your way of wording it. (laughs) I I don't think I could preach very very well at all without the performance part of me. Not to say it's not sincere, I don't feel like I'm putting on a show, but I do feel like music has been my first experience in getting out of my own way and just letting it flow, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think good a good sermon comes from a similar place. Child me would definitely never have seen the whole preaching thing coming, but 
it does come from a similar place as the arts do, where it's just like, I have this this sense of this thing and I have to, you know, kind of share it. Like, let's dig into this together. This seems like a good time to come back full circle to your mom, Nan Rundy. Well, I, I must say I was a very lucky kid to have grown up essentially with a, my own spiritual advisor. I only recently had to, you know, as somebody pursuing orders, holy orders, I should say, get like a spiritual advisor, spiritual advisor. And it's been amazing to have a spiritual advisor who isn't my mom, but at the same time, it's made me realize what a profound gift it has been to have a parent who is unafraid of the dark and unafraid of the depths and well-equipped to show somebody around, which is essentially what a priest should do. To, to be with people in the dark and the depths and help help show them through. So if you've enjoyed the Muse Mentors podcast, how about taking a moment right now to share it with one friend? And don't forget, you can learn more about Katie Rundy at her website and her Instagram page, where you'll find a photo of her wearing her massive wings and a radiant grin, and also images of her paintings, her 3D chalk art, and snow sculptures. Until next time, stop and think of your mother or someone who's been like a mother in your life and offer them a moment of thanks.